we messed up, James. We've kind of devolved into more of a monthly podcast, and then we did not get a podcast for September, and it was 100%, for the record, your fault. That might be true, but in terms of messing up, you have literally forgotten the trademark opening. That speaks to how long it has been since we last recorded. Hi, James. Ben, how are you? (laughs) (laughs) I do like that the problem that you had, and I'm going to share it with the masses. Yeah, please. You had the wrong USB cable (laughs) for your mic, which is hilarious because I made the exact same mistake like two months ago because you need, what is it, USB good to go or something Something like like that? that? Yeah. What a mess. Uh, How are you doing? I'm good. I mean, I feel like my run of bad luck with microphones in Austin continued because you're right. We were. That's right. This is the second time. It was the second time. And this time, unfortunately, because of time zones and daylight saving versus not, Best Buy was not open for me to do a mad dash to go pick up another microphone. So we just had to delay a week. We are going to talk about a article I did write September. So we'll pretend this is a September podcast, which was 2020 bundles. And it's interesting because we've talked about bundles and unbundling and unbundling at multiple times throughout sort of the run here. And I think the clear bookend here was, I think it was in 2017, I wrote The Great Unbundling, which was mostly focused on TV sort of stuff. But I think What's interesting about this post, which was not necessarily about TV, it was about apps and video games and iCloud storage and consoles and all that sort of stuff, is I think that's sort of the big picture takeaway about bundling and unbundling. The key thing is that when something unbundles and then rebundles, that's not going to happen along the same vector that it did. Because it was the same vector, then why don't you just keep sort of the previous bundle? So yes, it made sense that sort of the cable bundle was going to unbundle, but it wasn't necessarily rebundle as just a video bundle, because then why don't we just keep the one that we had originally? If you think about it, there has to be something about the impetus for the unbundling that is the same impetus for the rebundling. And because it's sort of orthogonal to what caused the bundle in the first place, that new bundle is going to look different. Sorry, that was a lot of words. Does that make sense? It does. Perhaps another framing on this that I thought was interesting and contrasting the two articles. The starting point was for the previous article with a previous set of bundles that were dominant across society and looking at how tech had come along and kind of knocked them out or was in the process of knocking out the cable bundle and how editorial and ads and newspapers had been blown apart by Facebook and so on. What was interesting about this one was this almost felt like, with the exception perhaps of Netflix, which is the connection between the two pieces, This almost felt like how bundles are evolving in the new world. We're talking about apps and Amazon. These are things that didn't exist 20 years ago, but new bundles that are emerging as technology and these companies enable new kinds of consumer experiences. That's exactly right. And as you think about those, I think the newspaper and the TV bundle, which I think are the most obvious sort of bundles from before that everyone's sort of familiar with. And they were both predicated on distribution where we're repeating about a million podcasts. But, you know, the newspaper, because you had printing presses and delivery trucks and you had a multi-sided market of advertisers and readers, you could bundle together lots of different editorial from sports to business to local news to national news with advertising into one bundle, one newspaper, and deliver that to customers. And by having all those different types of editorial that attracted the maximum sort of audience, by getting the maximum audience, you got the most advertisers. And you can see how it was all sort of lined up. But the key thing, it was predicated on that point of distribution. And so what happened was 
once the point of distribution went away, that bundle started to fall apart and not just advertising from editorial, but all the editorial pieces fell apart, right? No one goes to a general news site and gets their sports and all this sort of stuff. No, they go to a sports site or they go even better, a site about their specific team or they go to a specific author, right? Like the degree to which the newspaper has been atomized is remarkable, right? You think about it, the same things happen with advertising. It went from an advertisement in a newspaper that's reaching, you know, tens of thousands or 100,000 people to literally per person advertisements that are very finely targeted. You know, people get all wrapped up in what is targeted advertising? What does it mean? You think about it, every single one of us, as long as the internet has been around, has been basically viewing targeted content that's tuned to ourselves. We are often doing the tuning by deciding what we click on and what we read, but it's just as varied as the advertising is. You and I read completely different things, even if we have broadly similar interests, just because we're different people making different choices. Yeah. And I mean, the advantage of tech, it was kind of easy to see. I mean, you think about even the classified section, which is another one that got peeled off and you have that out in print and it's slow and you've got to read all these things manually versus you just put it on Craigslist and you can have this global thing where it's easy to search, you have categories, whatever, and you can make it free. And that was just part of the start of these newspapers, having that bundle peeled away and completely unbundled. Right. And even the different parts of the classifieds went to different companies. Like Craigslist took a lion's share, but some stuff went to eBay. Some stuff went to LinkedIn and recruiting, like all sorts of different places. Obviously, Craigslist was the big one. When this unbundling happens, it's like a shattering effect, right? Like everything is really completely broken apart. Right. So just to stick with the newspaper one and sort of the advertising, this sort of bundle that came out of that, it was content and advertising that was bundled does not necessarily mean that's the bundle that is going to happen in the future. So actually, the bundle that actually happened in the case of like Facebook was people and advertising. They had all the folks on their platform and they got all the advertising because they were able to put those pieces together. And in that case, sort of the content became completely sort of modularized and commoditized. So that's a great example of what I was trying to, you know, with all the highfalutin words I was using at the beginning, is where a bundle that formed on one axis in one set of conditions. In a different set of conditions, it forms on a completely different axis. It's not necessarily going to be the same sort of thing. Right. Figuring out like one part of that. And in this instance with Facebook, it was what people wanted and what would hold their attention is the starting point. And then once you get one part, you can start layering on the others. It's a great point. Like the way Facebook had to think about their market was very, very different than the way a newspaper had to think about their market, right? A newspaper had a sort of default position. And so they had to think about sort of maintaining that, making sure they have content that appealed to everyone and, you know, didn't appear too extreme. You wanted to play it down the middle because, you know, you had to appeal to both sides of the aisle, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas Facebook, you can always go somewhere else immediately. Like you think about it, people talk about antitrust like Facebook, you know, <laughs> local newspapers were a monopoly. You didn't have anywhere else to go. And they didn't want to call attention to that fact. So they were motivated to sort of play it on both sides. Whereas Facebook, the fact that it has a tendency to drive towards extremes is actually evidence of Facebook not having a sort of monopoly, not having a sort of lock-in, at least as far as users go. Like you could always go somewhere else with your time. You go to TikTok, you go to Snapchat, you could just go to the web, you go to Twitter, and they need to fight to keep your attention. Basically, no one has a monopoly on attention, I think is the way to put it. And that's different than it used to be previously. Right. 
the Reed Hastings letter to shareholder recently where he talked about how they track and Netflix loses more folks to Fortnite than they do to HBO, I feel like was a really illuminating example. There's a tendency just to view these things narrowly by category. But when you think about it from the customer's point of view and you think about it from the perspective of attention, it does a better job of driving at the job to be done. Well, here's an interesting question. Would Facebook be, quote unquote, better in that less likely to sort of drive towards extremes or whatever it might be if they were truly a monopoly because they wouldn't have sort of that competitive pressure to hold on to attention? It's a really interesting question, and my initial instinct is yes. I mean, I was listening to a podcast by Stanford. He was in Neuro, I think, and he was talking about an experiment in the 1960s where they popped off people's skulls and inserted electrodes and fired little bursts of electricity into different areas of the brain to figure out what people liked. And, you know, there was happiness and laughter. But the one where you gave people control, where they just kept on tap, 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 tapping, was this kind of mild anger slash frustration. It's interesting. It isn't the thing that you think would feel good. But even back in the 60s, it kind of alluded to the fact that if you want to hold people's attention and you want to get them on the platform, tapping into that thing is exactly the right way. I think your point is a good one, though. If Facebook didn't feel the need to hang on to people, it probably wouldn't feel so compelled to tap into those things and might choose what to present to users on a different basis. It's unrealistic, right? Because to your point, the competition for attention, like that is the one resource sort of in the world when it comes to the idea that there's abundance everywhere because everything is sort of can be duplicated endlessly, et cetera, et cetera. And so the one sort of scarce resource really is attention. And so it's a completely unrealistic sort of way to think about it. And I do think it's fair to say, right? I don't think that Facebook sets out to give you sort of controversial content, right? It's a outgrowth of how do we keep people on the platform longer? Will we give them more links that are similar to links they've clicked on previously or more content that they've interacted previously? And so it sort of follows on, well, let's sort of backwards calculate what's the stuff that tends to do that. Oh, it turns out it is this stuff, right? And again, the outcome is it doesn't matter how you frame it. I do think it's worth keeping in mind sort of the motivation. I think you get in a difficult place as far as having an impact if you sort of impute these evil motives to everything. When so much stuff is not thinking through the consequences, and again, it's easy to sit here and say, wow, Facebook should have really thought through those consequences. But then you look at so many other folks and so many other companies that are just repeatedly not thinking through the consequences. It's like, turns out thinking through the consequences, particularly for completely new stuff, is really hard. And this isn't to excuse the outcomes. It's just to point out that a little bit of empathy, I think, goes a long way in both avoiding these problems in the future and also really delivering meaningful ways to feedback and criticism. I totally agree. I don't know that they haven't thought through the consequences though, but it reminds me of that old saying, it's really hard to get a man to see something where his livelihood depends on him not seeing it. And absolutely. The set of incentives are to keep people on the platform. And it also does give you a little bit of understanding as to how people can complain so much about some of what the algorithm turns up and why it feels like Facebook kind of drags their feet. And it's like, well, there's two forces. I don't feel like anyone inside of Facebook is out to ruin society. There are lots of really great people there. It's just this type of content 
where you get people a bit angry, righteous anger, and you play into confirmation bias and whatever. That type of content keeps people around. Oh, absolutely. I think that it's very well put. And I think this point about not seeing what is you're motivated not to see is spot on. To me, the all-time best thing ever written about Facebook was that article by Andrew Bosworth, internal sort of VP at Facebook, where it was actually being quite honest about it, where it's like, we worry about these things, we talk about these things, but at the end of the day, what's our number one priority, our number one incentive is growth. And we always pursue that. It's basically what that article was, was saying in the Facebook priority stack, that growth always ends up on top. And that just has real implications. And, you know, I would say that, I don't know if growth is still on top, or if it's more about engagement, just like sort of keeping people on the platform because at this point, so you know, basically everyone's already on Facebook. But maybe those are the same thing. I don't know. There's different ways to think about it. I wrote about this, I think, a couple weeks ago where I was less worried about Facebook in part because I felt the profit motive was more of a check. And you were always concerned about King Mark in a way and being beyond that. And what sort of woke me up to that was that article he wrote about building global community. He's basically setting up Facebook as this supranational thing that's it's about like are we going to solve global warming facebook you know i mean that's a bit of a simplification but it was like setting facebook up as this good for the world sort of thing and to me that was very alarming and it was alarming in part because i feel better about a company that's sort of sheerly profit motivated because there's a certain predictability and a way of thinking about the way that they're going to approach things that has a natural sort of check on it, right? Whereas in this case, if that's not the motivation, you're really devolving into one person is deciding things without any sort of accountability. And what's striking about that moment is what was the big product outcome of that. It ended up being this real shift to focus on groups. And it turns out that was brilliant from a product perspective. These groups keep people on Facebook. They keep people locked in. They're super engaged because you think about it, it is from a certain perspective, the best part of the internet. You're creating these niches, these communities around these things that are good. And there's lots of great groups out there. But it turns out, there's a lot of communities that we would prefer not to exist. And those are enabled just as much as the good ones. There was the Verge article. Casey Newton, he does a lot of great Facebook reporting. The most interesting part of that recent article was the engineer talking about how he was terrified of groups. And it reminded me of the conversation you and I had maybe 12 months ago, where we talked about how it used to be in the old world, the crazies would stand on the street corners with their sign and most people would just walk past and how the internet has kind of allowed them to find each other. It felt like Facebook groups was the next level of that, which is it's not just they allowed them to find each other. It's like, oh, you have a sign. I'm just going to pick you up. It algorithmically pushed them together. Yeah, yeah. I'll pick you up and I'll drop you next to the person with exactly the same sign. And suddenly all these people have community and yeah, it can be a little bit scary. A little bit. It's extremely scary. And the reason why this ties back into, this is a massive digression. I know. We definitely have not talked together long (laughs) enough because we immediately jumped to talk about Facebook for 10 minutes. Right. Which has nothing to do with our bundles. Right. (laughs) But it's good to talk to you again. It is. Uh, Is this is a great example of why pushing back against the Facebook is actively evil 
sort of narrative, I think is important to do because the real danger and the real problem comes from these unintended consequences. And if you're so focused on impugning bad motives, what does that do to face it? Just close their ears. Why even listen? Like it's so blatantly unfair and it is unfair. And the reason it's a problem is because it's not excusing Facebook. It's foreclosing the opportunity to make real criticisms. Yeah. Again, there are too many folks I know that are motivated by doing the right thing. It's just this other thing that's the opposite tension that's making it challenging for them. I think Twitter might be worse, honestly. Yeah, that's a possibility. I was thinking about how we could segue back to bundles. And I was like, well, you were talking about King Mark and you get worried when people don't just have a profit motive. And then I was like, well, we could pull back through Rupert Murdoch and Fox and get back to bundling. I wonder if that's how we'll get back on topic. No, I think we just jump back in. It's fine. Yeah, let's do it. Let's go to Netflix. You made the point that it's kind of similar to what came before, and that's right. And we've talked about Netflix several times where Netflix removed the constraint of time. I've used this a million times, but it's so compelling, which is when Netflix licensed that Stars library, Stars effective library was one because there was only one Stars channel, and Netflix's effective library was 11,000 because you could choose anyone you wanted to watch. Well, the implication of that is if you can watch anything and everything on Netflix, Netflix is not constrained in size, right? And to me, this is so critical to think about this whole space is any network that is on regular TV is fundamentally limited by time. It's the whole human attention thing. Like there's only 24 hours in a day. There's only seven days a week. There's only 52 weeks a year. And that is your fundamental constraint. And yes, you can add more channels, but even then you're limited at some point in how many you can add and how much you can show at any one time. Whereas Netflix is completely unconstrained in size. It could literally have every single piece of content in the world. Right. It doesn't, but it could. It's the checkers versus chess. It's almost like Facebook's. You go onto the Facebook homepage and the newsfeed, which is algorithmically generated for you versus, I mean, we can compare it to newspapers, so that's not entirely fair because Facebook pulls across much more than just that type of content. There's only one front page of any local newspaper. Every person who logs into Facebook or now Instagram or even TikTok gets their own version of the front page, what gets demonstrated, displayed to them. And Netflix has basically done the same thing as that to traditional content. It's not making you watch the thing that would hew to the middle, as we talked about earlier, you'd put on the show that would get the most people. You can start exploring all these niches and encourage people to go down them. And it just completely changes the game and watch it when you want too. That's right. And I think the way to think about this idea of Netflix being able to have everything is the thing about this complete scalability is it just so changes the nature of competing against them for content, right? And so we've talked about how Netflix, you know, sort of rejiggers the value chain where instead of buying from networks, they'll just buy shows directly or now they'll just hire like people that create shows and let them create shows and they're integrating way into a different point of the sort of content value chain. But the way this matters is in the way that Netflix's lead is so formidable in this space is because their buying power is so much greater than anyone else because every purchase that they make can be spread across way more subscribers than anyone else. Their per subscriber price for a new show is always going to be drastically lower than anyone else just because they have more subscribers. It's a basic sort of math function. Their divisor is just larger than anyone else's. The reason this matters is there's no constraint on this space. They could literally buy every piece of content in the world. Their only limit is sort of their own internally imposed budget. Whereas at least 
in the old world, HBO, again, only had a set amount of time. Your cable channel only had a set amount of time. There was some other constraint out there. And so what's interesting about the video angle, we talked about before about how video is reconstituting. Well, one, just the default choice, like there kind of only can be one pure play video player because the long run economics are so in Netflix's favor. And so it turns out that a lot of the alternative video options end up being tied to something else. So you have Amazon Prime Video that's tied to Amazon Prime. You have Apple Plus that's tied to Apple Plus's collection of services. And Disney Plus is tied to the entire Disney proposition. And it's why I'm much more skeptical on other pure play video options because there's really only room for one. Yeah, not that I would put HBO in exactly the same category, but in the same way that the New York Times seems to have survived the shift to digital because it was the highest quality content. I would say that if you have differentiated content and you're reliably able to produce it, you might be able to survive as like a kind of niche pure play as well. But again, I would say the New York Times versus Facebook, I would rather be Facebook than the New York Times in that new world. Yeah, and it also speaks to, I think, how AT&T has really screwed this up because they are the ones that were most willing to take Netflix on head-on. Disney is not taking Netflix on head-on. And Hulu is to a degree, but it's kind of like it's off to the side a bit. AT&T is like, no, HBO Max, we're going to leverage HBO to go full-on against Netflix and we're going to take it on. And it's like, well... Yes, you have all this cash you throw from your wireless business. You can buy a lot of content, but you're so in the hole, relatively speaking, number one. And number two, imagine if the New York Times ended up being all the content on the internet that you could get your hands on, right? <laughs> like of varying quality and you didn't know what it was and what it wasn't. Like you would quickly run the risk of diminishing the brand to the extent where you lose the part that did make it special. And I think that's the question for AT&T and HBO. It's like, yeah, I get the desire to be bigger than what it is, but you run the risk of losing what it is along the way. I have a question for you, Ben. How do you create a successful small business? By finding a niche? This is kind of a trick question. By giving a successful large business to a telco. <laughs> yes. Should have walked right into that one. Yeah, yeah, kind of a little. <laughs> well, what's the other telco thing? Oh, yeah, we'll see what happens in India with this geo thing. But yeah, that's definitely traditionally been the case. And you saw what's going on with like Verizon and like the Huffington Post and their content network and all that sort of stuff. Oh, and Tumblr and oh, it's brutal. It really does happen again and again and again. You think about it. What business is going to be more obsessed with distribution and thinking that's all that matters? And physical distribution, I should be clear. It's going to be the companies that spend like billions and billions of dollars on building physical distribution. And then they just mess it up. It's good for some things, but not for everything. You know, we spent... 26 minutes of Facebook digression to get here. But the big <laughs> thing is that this unbundling and bundling concept, the key thing is that whatever triggered that unbundling is going to also trigger the rebundling, but by definition, the rebundling is going to be on a different axis. So that's the takeaway. I really enjoyed the way that you went through and categorized how the different bundles had happened. And I think it's worth recounting a little bit of this, but I think we should save some time because there are a couple of them at the end. Microsoft and Apple, I feel like, are really interesting in this regard. But like the way you talked about Disney, and we touched on Disney previously in a podcast, but thinking about Disney Plus as a way of building a relationship with Disney customers, whereas previously they didn't really have it. Categorizing it as a CRM, I thought was like a brilliant distillation of the idea. 
Oh, and it gets to this part where I think the bundles are going to work. And again, I think this is mostly about focusing on video because all these ones sort of had a video component. But well, let's make that point, actually. All these are not just about video. I should actually frame it the opposite way. That's what's interesting because it's all digital content. Reed Hastings said that all this stuff is competing for attention. But from a distribution perspective, it also is all the same. An app, a video, a game, all these things are just digital bits, you know, an advertisement, a Facebook post. From a physical distribution perspective, they're all the same thing, which is why these bundles end up having all lots of different kinds of different pieces in them. Right. I mean, I also think it's interesting to come at it from the perspective of if the consumer is awash in this world of all these endless options vying for their attention, what's particularly compelling about this one and how does that then fit into the company's strategy? The Disney one, I think, is just so... I love the fact that they did the Mulan thing where you had to be a subscriber and then it was on top of that. I mean, I love it because I told them that I wrote that they should do that a while ago. But why was Disney always staying with the theater model? Because their whole point is to maximize their sort of revenue per product and revenue per customer. It's a very, very different than the Netflix model. And if you apply Netflix thinking to Disney, you're going to miss the point because it's all about having super identifiable IP that draws you in, that makes you spend money. And that means the actual physical distribution mechanics are the same because it's the same for everyone. But the business model is different and the goal is different. Right. In the old world, getting that IP out, getting those characters out through as many channels as possible makes a ton of sense. But in the new world, potentially recognizing that you can build a direct relationship with consumers, understand what they like and watch, and then offer the content at a relative discount to get that relationship being built makes sense. Well, the other thing, too, is when everyone was sort of part of the cable bundle, everyone had to have the same business model. But again, that was a constraint of the physical distribution, right? So Disney's goal with the Disney Channel, for example, was, of course, to have more people building a connection with Disney and wanting to go to Disney World and Disney Cruises and buy Disney merchandise. They just happened to monetize via subscription fees and being a part of a bundle because that was the only way to do it. And once there's a different way to do it, well, actually, we'll have this Disney Plus direct-to-consumer. We'll actually have a much lower price. Like if Disney Plus was a standalone product, it would almost certainly be priced higher. They priced it lower because the whole point is to get more people there, to get more information. Now they have a direct connection with consumers to market to them. They have a platform to do things like the Muon release. And you think about it, Disney Plus as constructed seems like such a win for the broader Disney model. It's like, man, I can't believe they stuck with that old TV bundle as long as they did. Right. It makes a ton of sense. So then the second one, I think it was Amazon. You know, Amazon's crazy because I've had such a hard time with Amazon Prime Video. The old Amazon, like Amazon really made all their money on like CDs and books and DVDs. And it's like they're flailing around for some replacement for this. I'm like, man, should we be skeptical? It was about Amazon Prime Video. I'm like, I can't understand what they're doing here. Like, is this supposed to get people to sign up for Amazon Prime? Are they going to monetize it directly? And I wrote an article being like, this makes me wonder about Amazon broadly. And that was poor article. Fortunately, I retracted it about nine months later. I'm like, oh, I, I, now I, that was a mistake. But the mistake there or the sort of retraction was like, oh, AWS is going to be a profit driver that is going to provide a sort of cash flow and money foundation for the rest of the business so they can keep doing this sort of experimentation. But I never did figure out what Amazon Prime Video was doing. And I've written about it back and forth a few different times. Like, what's the point here? And this actually came from a conversation I had with someone else where they were describing how amazing the Amazon bundle was by virtue of the fact it has all these 
crazy disparate pieces that seem to have nothing to do with each other. Actually, the best bundles are pretty unrelated, not related. Because if, if stuff's super closely related, you're kind of just giving value away to the customer because they were going to subscribe to both anyway, right? If they're very unrelated, then it's like that's how you're pulling in completely unrelated customers as part of a broader whole. But the key thing is, is you need to be super clear about what they're paying for. Because the problem with the cable bundle is folks be like, oh, there's these 10 channels I don't watch, right? And they get very upset, feel they're overpaying. The reality is those 10 channels cost like $2 and it wasn't hurting anyone to have them. And they were actually getting a great deal. And so what Amazon does very well, and this is where I didn't quite get it, is they do price all these separately. So you can subscribe to Amazon Prime Video for like $7 a month or something, or you can get the whole Amazon Prime, which includes the free shipping part, for $10, $11 a month. And when you buy something on Amazon, they hey, by the way, you can go watch all these videos for free. It's part of your whole thing. And in this case, it's like, oh, that's another reason to stay as opposed to I'm getting all this crap I don't want. It's true management. It's not necessarily attracting you in the first place. It's keeping you there. Here's the struggle I always have with these companies. I feel like the prime delivery and the shopping experience is so compelling in the first instance. And I don't have insight into their numbers. And my guess is they don't break out how many individual subscribers they have to prime video. There is a temptation when we analyze companies to look at it and assume they're brilliant and then backwards engineer as to why they must be doing it. And what you say makes sense, but is it really moving the needle? Is there data that shows since Amazon introduced Prime Video, have their churn numbers actually decreased on Prime? I realize it's a rhetorical question because we don't necessarily have access to it. I would love to see it. It also feels like it's kind of in keeping with Jeff Bezos's, like if Apple is the curated, every experience perfectly put together, Amazon's kind of like, we're just going to let a thousand flowers bloom. It feels like it's in keeping with that. But I would love to be able to see the data to quantify whether it's actually reducing churn or not. There must be some strategic rationale because they're pretty good at killing stuff if it doesn't work. But it does feel like there's just a hint to me of the like, oh, let's look at the company, assume it's brilliant and then justify its strategy. Oh, I think that's definitely the case, particularly with Amazon, to be clear. They're so predicated on tons of experimentation and seeing what sticks and what doesn't. And the whole Amazon one thing this week, paying with your palm, you kind of think about it. It's like an iteration on having their own bookstores. Oh, what if we do this cashierless thing? Oh, now let's do palm scanning. Like You can see they're sort of like just trying stuff out to see how to break into physical retail broadly, right? And that's what makes Amazon so brilliant, is this the fact that they will try stuff out and throw stuff against the wall and see what sticks and what doesn't. And that's why, to go back to the article I felt bad about, why having a core part of the business that does make a lot of money to fund all this stuff is super important, right? I think you're totally right. And I think Amazon Prime Video has been all over the place about this. Like, I think part of it is like, can we get people to sign up because of it? Can it be a standalone business? And when I say that it is churn management, I think that's where it's settled, basically. And you see a real acceleration over the last couple of years on what's in Amazon Prime. Like, it's not just the shipping thing. It also has Amazon Prime Music and it has the video thing and it has lots of book stuff. And like, most of the stuff, I don't have any use. I just want the shipping. But all you need, though, is to add one of those. Like, I now listen to Amazon Prime Music all the time. And it's like, you know, I haven't bought anything from Amazon for a while or whatever. It's like, oh, but, you know, my music service is there. Basically, every little hook they can get where you're less likely to cancel 
pays off to the rest of the business. Because as you know, Amazon Prime shoppers spend way more on Amazon. Their searches start on Amazon the way they don't on Google. And so it makes sense to just keep layering stuff into this bundle because all you need is just one of those to hook someone. And as long as it's priced super clearly where, yeah, you're kind of getting all this stuff for free, you're not really paying extra for it, then I think it is a very sort of effective strategy. It's funny, as you're talking, like there's a more malign explanation for this, which is in the same way the Bezos kind of had aspirations with the phone and got super hands-on. He's kind of gone through a little bit of a personal transformation recently into being a bit more of a mogul, et cetera, et cetera. And maybe the prime video is his attempt to break into Hollywood and break into the cool set. And because it's bundled in with the rest of prime, unlike the phone where you could clearly see that it wasn't working, maybe with prime video, it's sticking around longer because it's not so clear that it was a failure. Well, it's been around for 14 years, to be clear. This is not a new sort of idea. They've been working on it for a while. And I always thought it was really weird when you would buy something on Amazon and they would put an interstitial saying, hey, you're a Prime Video customer. Check out these things that are on. It used to annoy me. Absolutely. It is annoying, right? But you think about it. Why is that the place to put it? Because that works against the Prime Video is a reason for people to join Amazon Prime. The reason to join Amazon Prime is super clear. You get free shipping, right? And it used to be two days. They're working to get it to one day, et cetera, et cetera. But the reason to put it there is you want people, again, to use more parts of the bundle because the more parts of the bundle they use, the less likely they are to churn. And you think about the cable bundle in this regard, what was valuable about all those edge channels is if you have someone in the house that really likes history and watches the history channel, you're that much less likely to churn. And the whole point of cables in the bundle is they are anti-churn mechanisms. That's why ESPN is so valuable. Not because a ton of people watch ESPN, but the people that watch ESPN absolutely have to have it. Or the same thing with the regional sports networks. They have to have their games and they will never give it up as long as they're there and they have massive pricing power, et cetera, et cetera. So I think flipping it from a, this is why people sign up to a, this is why people won't quit. That's the Amazon angle from my perspective. It's interesting you mentioned that. In preparation for this, I actually went back and read your old article and you went through the jobs that TV does. And the one that was definitely the most dominant was the sports angle and must watch my team, must follow my sports. It occurred to me that in an era of COVID, whether the fact that a lot of those sports haven't been playing has actually impacted people's stickiness on the cable bundle. Because, I mean, people are suffering economically. A lot of these sports aren't playing, looking for ways of saving some money. The flip side is people have a lot more free time and maybe they're watching more cable TV. But I wonder if it's having an impact on core cutting. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting because the NBA ratings are super down, for example. I think NFL is it slipped a little bit, but it's still doing okay. I'm curious to the break too, right? Did anyone's habits sort of get reset where they were used to always watching something? I think part of it is the NBA, for example, it's October and the NBA is usually not being, <laughs> that's not when the finals supposed to be played, it's played in June. I think getting back to normal schedule help, but it is interesting because sports is that linchpin. It's what holds not just the cable bundle together, but it holds like our whole economy together, right? Like the big box retailers, big autos, like CPG brands, like that are advertising around sporting events. It's really important. And one of the many things that COVID could pull forward is the unwinding of getting together for the big game. Right. And so much is predicated on that. And I was thinking about it from cable. But like you said, there are all these other aspects and it starts to pull on it. 
Yeah, anyhow, let's get to Apple Microsoft because I think those are two of the most interesting ones. I think Microsoft's the most interesting. I think Apple's honestly kind of boring. <laughs> well, actually, I feel like that is part of the reason why they are so interesting to compare and contrast because Apple's approach to bundling right now reminds me a little bit of Microsoft in the late 1990s. Apple feels so dominant and it has such great distribution that it doesn't really have to think about, oh, we're just going to throw these in and see what happens. Like it didn't feel at all compelling. Whereas Microsoft has lost its exclusive distribution channel in the same way kind of Apple had done like in the late 90s. They were hungry. They had to be hungry. And and when Apple were hungry, think about how they came up with the iPod iTunes bundle, which was incredible, and then leveraged that into the iPhone. And it doesn't feel like Apple's got that hunger and it's almost like their ability to figure out the right bundle is lacking. Whereas Microsoft feels like it's kind of lost that monopoly that it had with Windows. And as a result of that, it's experimenting with stuff. And the thing that they did with their console in particular, I thought was really freaking cool. Let's get to that. But I love the point that you just made about Apple, because it wasn't just that. It was also, remember, the iPhoto and iMovie garage band. What was the group called? Oh, iLife. iLife. I just iLife. It up. There we go. <laughs> but that was a bundle. And this is what I think is compelling and sets it apart from what Apple does now. It wasn't just a bundle of applications where you had a photo application and a movie application and a music making application and all those sorts of things. They were bundled with the hardware itself. And so you were not just selling a computer. You were selling the ability to make movies. You were not just selling a laptop. You were selling the ability to edit photos. It all came as one thing. And by the way, just to put a point on this, the reason I got a Mac was because I was super into making music. I was super into it. I had the idea of being super into it. And the GarageBand thing was super compelling. This was what felt so lacking about the Apple One bundle. It felt like it was lazy. It would be the equivalent of taking all those apps and throwing it in as opposed to understanding the job of the customer. And for example, their fitness thing, and you made a great point in your article when you covered it around even when they charge you on a per month basis, they're still making their money up front because it's third parties providing the finance. But if you think about it, it's like, okay, you buy an Apple Watch up front, you just get the Apple Watch. But what about if you bought Apple Watch and you were paying it on a monthly basis, then you get the fitness thing that they're offering as part of that subscription. And similarly, like the music thing is most likely to go with the phone. So if you buy the phone up front, you just get the phone. But if you buy the phone on the ongoing subscription, oh, we'll include Apple Music for you with that. And suddenly that would make it feel so compelling. But instead, they didn't do the hard work of understanding the consumer and pulling the pieces together properly. I don't think it's understanding the consumer. It's like the phone doesn't need help selling, right? When they did the Mac thing, it was like they spent so much time and energy and money on those applications because they needed a way to sell the Mac. They needed a way for people to buy it. The Mac didn't sell itself, at least not sort of in sufficient numbers. The iPhone sells itself just fine, right? And so you get a sense, whereas it used to be iLife was a reason to buy the Mac, Apple services feels like a reason to give Apple more money. That's what it feels like. I called Apple bundle as moneymaker. I originally had bundle as money grab because that's kind of what it feels like. It's like, what's a way we can get people to give us more money? And yeah, I think the fitness one is the best example of this. I think folks like Peloton or whatever it might be would be way more threatened if that was a part of the watch. So you're not just buying a watch. 
you're buying into a lifestyle. You know, you can do it's like the marketing almost sells itself. You get this and you get a service with it and you get exercising and it ties in all these sorts of things. But no, you can buy a watch and oh, if you want to give us a little bit more money, you can also have this sort of thing. And yeah, it does feel lazy. I think there are two axes on this. One, what you just described around selling the lifestyle. And I think these services could actually be a way to start convincing people to transition to paying Apple a subscription for the whole shebang, not just buy the hardware and subscribe to the service on the side, but actually make the hardware a service and you're buying into Apple and use the services as the leverage to get people over. That's how I think this could make sense to pivot to Microsoft, that's what I thought was so brilliant about what they were doing with their console. The Microsoft thing is such a great contrast because here's the deal. The reason why Apple doesn't work is because honestly, what their services just aren't compelling enough. If you were to have an iPhone and Apple One bundle, what is providing the actual value in that bundle? It's so much the iPhone, right? It's just a dominant share of the value that you're getting that it's almost be impossible to even price it properly where it actually feels like you're getting something meaningful. It's like last year they offered three months of Apple TV and like, you know what? That's a great use for Apple TV. Throw in a little something on top to make the medicine go down. That's the sort of value prop Apple has. Whereas Microsoft, the reason why this is so interesting and so compelling to follow is what they are doing is they're investing all their money to make the services part of their bundle so valuable. So you're getting at least 100 games, like AAA titles, like big games. You get those for free. Again, free in quotes because you're paying a monthly service fee, but then they just spent $7.5 billion to buy all this IP that is all going to be a part of the Xbox Game Pass. What really flipped it in my head where I understood how Microsoft's approach was so much different is you can get the console and pay monthly and also get Xbox Game Pass. That's wrong. You're not paying for a console monthly and getting a service on top. What Microsoft is offering you is if you subscribe to our service, you can layer on a console on top because what you are buying from Microsoft's perspective is you are subscribing to a service. The console is just an implementation detail. Right. It's truly brilliant because what's the old marketing paradigm? Consumers want a quarter inch hole, not a quarter inch drill. And this is Microsoft shifting to you paying a monthly fee to get quarter inch holes as opposed to buying this expensive quarter inch drill and then having to buy all the bits to fit on top of it on an ongoing basis. It's almost hard to talk about this because Apple is obviously going to be successful just by virtue of their dominant position. There's a sense of momentum and inertia in their position, right? Whereas Microsoft, you know, particularly in gaming, like Sony really dominated the last generation in part because Microsoft got wrapped up into the whole living room thing and they got distracted from gaming, right? And you could argue they're getting distracted from gaming again here because they're doing a different model. They're really focused on services. But one, I do think this is much more compelling. And two, to your point, the company that is sort of coming from behind is going to be more innovative. And it doesn't mean it's going to work, but you can definitely say this is much more innovative and compelling than the company in the weed, even if it ends up that the company in the weed ends up doing better sort of financially. Yeah, I don't know. Coming back to Apple, I really feel like I don't want to count out the iPhone, but there's some aspect to which as consumers may start to stretch out their purchases longer 
and like hang on to existing phones. And this is kind of what you saw with the PC as well. It starts to hit a point in performance where do you really need to keep getting the latest one and having people on a subscription? And it's kind of the same with the watch. Like the watch is a fashion accessory, but it's less a luxury fashion accessory. And you kind of keep wanting to get the latest features. Like if I'm not convinced that the blood oxygen reading works really accurately, but in an era of COVID, if it did, that would be phenomenal. And getting people in the mindset of Apple services narrative, if it wasn't just services as bolt-ons that we make more money out of the iPhone, but actually transform the way the company thinks about the relationship they have with customers as they're almost subscribers and the reliability of revenue and the stickiness. And then you add services on top of that, that you can kind of bundle in, in order to get people on that services treadmill, to me, that suddenly starts making sense. The crazy thing is the contrast, Microsoft executed on that perfectly. And I can see how this could really work in the long run for them. There's two points to make. So first on the Microsoft thing, a lot of these games that they acquired, like from id Software and Bethesda and et cetera, are available on Steam on Microsoft right now. And Steam is like, in many respects, kind of the bait of Microsoft's existence because they built this entire platform on top of Windows and Microsoft was just completely asleep at the wheel. And now it's this super dominant sort of thing. But what really speaks to how compelling this model is for Microsoft is actually, I think they'll probably leave those games on Steam. And why not? Because Steam is a transaction model. You go in there and you pay $60 or whatever for a game and you download it. And Microsoft's going to be able to say, fine, if you want to keep gaming the way you always did, why would we destroy the value of Bethesda software? It's, we paid $7.5 billion for it. We're not going to destroy that. But by the way, if you would rather not pay $60 and only get some of the games, you have to pay for each one individually, you could just pay us $15 a month to get access to all those games. Right now, instead of taking steam on head on, it's a very orthogonal approach to it. That's how you know you have something orthogonal, right? Where you can let the old business model keep going, because if you buy into our vision, why would you even want to bother? It is beautiful in that sense. It's funny what Steam is to Microsoft. It's almost like WeChat is to Apple. Like when someone manages to put a layer of abstraction on top of the platform and their platform becomes more valuable than yours, it would kind of be frustrating to the organization, though, the underlying platform. Well, the other thing that's interesting about the Apple point is, you know what a compelling Apple bundle would look like? And this is this would make people lose their minds. But imagine if you paid X amount of money and you got access to all of the apps in the App Store, where it's not just Apple Arcade, where you get some small subset of games that Apple has sort of commissioned and is there. But you know what? You don't want to have ads in your games. You want to worry about privacy. You don't want to pay anything. Guess what? You pay X amount and you get access to all of the apps and we will figure out a way to pay off developers on the back end. And see, this is this thing that, um, which by the way, this would be terrible for developers, <laughs> but just, but that's what a real bundle would look like. Right. But like the lens of doing the work to really understand what the customer would value, it feels like that's what Microsoft did the legwork on and went and invested the money in order to do. And it feels like Apple's. They've got the distribution channel. They've got the successful cash cow. They haven't done the same extent of the work. And it's disappointing because, I mean, the economic underpinnings of these things is when you get them right, people become sticky, but the value created is just tremendous. And it feels like there's just a really big lost opportunity here. There's two things to say to that. So number one, 
Microsoft is very motivated to go in this direction because one, Steam is dominant on Windows and Sony is sort of winning in consoles. So they have a motivation, one, to shake it up. And two, Microsoft is a cloud sort of services business now. And so this sort of slots into the broader Microsoft big picture goals. So I would be a little wary of saying, oh, they listen to the customer in this direction. This is very good for Microsoft if it works out, right? There's a lot of self-interest here. And on the same token, I would say the reality is, is that Apple's model has worked. People gripe on lots of different angles, particularly developers. But by and large, it has worked and continues to work. And why should they mess with those working just so we can have a nice podcast about what a great bundle they have, right? There is an aspect where Microsoft's idea is so elegant, but one, we're not sure customers actually want it. That remains to be seen. And Apple's doesn't feel very elegant at all, but why should you mess with what's working? It's a good question. And on the App Store point, I think point taken, I still really think there is value in shifting people over from these big one-time purchases onto a subscription basis with their hardware. I hadn't thought of that App Store idea. I find it super compelling and it's interesting to think about how much I would be willing to pay to turn the App Store into Spotify or Apple Music or like Microsoft's new gaming service. There's some amount that I would consistently happily pay in order to do that. But even still, Apple, have they're on the cusp of this. They already offer the phone on a monthly plan and then you get the Apple Care and whatever. It feels like they're so close and there's a little bit more of a push. But if you view moving people onto the subscription is something that could be valuable. And I really think it could be. Then using it through that lens actually might make sense. And like you said, you can start to position it in terms of like a lifestyle thing. The watch comes at a monthly amount and you're not just buying a watch, you're getting this lifestyle service to get fit. That's what they're selling with the watch, health. But it's not just a hardware thing. It's now that hardware software integration that we talked about with iLife or music, which is what the insight was with the iPod and iTunes together. Yeah, I mean, again, I just think it's worth keeping in mind, you know, phones have a natural sort of upgrade cycle because the battery wears out, you drop them, they break, you know. It's very easy to get into like an intellectual argument, say these other models are so much more elegant and Apple's just trying to sell you a dumb piece of hardware. Again, it misses the reality of it works pretty well, but I do think you just got to it at the end. I think the fitness one, that's the one that feels off. It feels like this is something that should make a watch more compelling as opposed to a way to extract an extra $10 a month or $8 a month from your customers. Right. I'm committed to not having such a long break that you forget our introduction the next time we record. <laughs> you were just straight in. When I was looking back, I was like, you know, we're setting into a nice once a month. We have one every month. I'm like, and then we missed September and I felt bad. And I'm like, I have to make sure that everyone knows that it's James's fault, not mine. Full self-preservation mode. Yeah, 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 yeah. Blame appropriately apportioned before you even said hello. <laughs> It's a good object lesson by attempting to put everything on you. Let everyone know you're the bad guy. I'm the good guy. I just screwed everything up. Uh, put that aside. I don't think that's true, but it is really good to chat. Yeah, it was tongue in cheek. It's good to talk to you as well. Uh, let's not wait so long until the next one. Sounds good. I'll speak to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. See you, mate.